He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 5, 2022. We have an incredibly great show. These are stressful times made more stressful by Donald Trump, who gave a speech in Texas proving his bigotry once and for all. He talked to that right wing in Texas and He praised Dixie. He praised the Confederacy. I'll play the words for you. They kind of got obscured by him dangling pardons to those white power people who backed his big lie play and invaded the Capitol. The same schmageggies from Charlottesville. Then he promised riots to the cities where prosecutors who he called racist because they're black are about to charge him with his many crimes. It's all coming apart, and Mike Pence made his break, and I've got this sound. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. Now, that's a big deal. Mike Pence is a Christian. He represents some very religious parts of the Republican Party. Which side will they choose, Donald Trump or Mike Pence? I think there's real division here, and that's a good question for political candidates now. Are you on the side of Mike Pence or Donald Trump? Let's hear Denver Trump Radio ask candidates that. It's not enough to say, is Joe Biden really president? Of course they need to say yes. Ask them about January 6th. Ask them about his praise of Texas. My goodness, what a great guest I have for you right now. Chris Tomlinson is one of the authors of Forget the Alamo. And I think he wrote most of the book. Forget the Alamo, the rise and fall of an American myth. Chris Tomlinson worked decades for the Associated Press covering foreign conflicts. He's seen ethnic clashes. What an experience level he has. And he's a fantastic writer. This book is amusing, fun. Chris now writes business columns for the Houston Chronicle. And before you get to hear from him, let me tell you what the rest of the show is about. Our troubadour who comes through Better than ever. He always comes through, but my goodness, I told him what this show was about. And he gave me the song New Last Chance, which fits the Alamo so well. It's at the back end of this show, after Chris Tomlinson. And then I also have a sound related to Mike Pence, because when I went to the White House July 25, 2017, got to interview a bunch of people right outside the West Wing, the Oval Office. I didn't get in there. I got in the press room and all of that. But among the many people we got to interview was Mark Short, 
Mark Short, who was then legislative liaison for Donald Trump, became chief of staff for Mike Pence. He's cooperating with the January 6th committee. I sized him up that day, and now he may be the key to the truth coming out because he's not said, I won't testify like Jen Ellis, hiding the truth from the American people. He stepped up. That's why Pence probably stepped up. He knows his people. Also got to interview Mark Lauder that day, who was Pence's press secretary. My goodness, the people I've met, I've got the sound of the Mark Short interview because he's going to be a major figure in this drama. You can hear Dan Kaplis and myself at the back end of the show live. Now it's recorded, but we were live from the White House, and it was pretty darn cool. But back to Chris Tomlinson, the lead-in. Donald Trump, last Saturday night in Texas. Listen to what he said. From Houston to Austin, from Dallas to El Paso, from the Red River to the Rio Grande, the people of Texas live and breathe the fierce spirit of independence, and the Lone Star State has always embraced the cause of American freedom like no one else or like no place else. This is the state where William Travis, James Bowie, and Davy Crockett made their last stand at the Alamo. I love the Alamo. This is the state where a small band of patriots from the Battle of Gonzales, armed with a single cannon, stared down a foreign army that was so powerful and declared, come and take it. And Texas is the state where generations of farmers and ranchers and sheriffs and lawmen, cowboys and cattle hands, prospectors, pioneers helped build up the greatest nation in the history of the world. And we will never let any socialist or communist movement take that away from us. Oh, just one more thing before... We go to Chris Tomlinson because I want to set the scene of being in Washington at the White House during the Trump administration. This was prior to Charlottesville. And Dan Kaplis and I were talking about the experience. And I told him how I took Sam to see the play Hamilton. It moved me. I remembered when Mike Pence got addressed from the stage after he enjoyed the show, and we debated whether that was appropriate or not. But those actors and uh, the crew probably knew better than I did the scope of this administration. This was not just another vice president. This was vice president to Donald Trump, whose remarks in Texas you just heard. And I should have heard his words more clearly before, when they were perhaps more subtle. He's been a bigot for a long time. Anyway, he had a lot of power, and the people from this stage lectured Mike Pence. And I didn't necessarily think it was right or wrong, but after I saw Hamilton, I was thinking about it, and I told Dan Kaplis, and we were doing this right at the White House, give it a listen before we come back with Chris Tomlinson. We're right outside the West Wing, the Oval Office. It's unbelievable. And Dan, 
you went and saw Hamilton on your recommendation. My son and I went up to New York, saw Hamilton. A lot mm. of talk about vice presidency in that play. And it's so apropos of American history. Thomas Jefferson, of course, uh, his legendary battles went to the Jefferson Memorial today. But remember, Mike Pence went to Hamilton and got lectured. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, aside and apart from that, how the play must have struck somebody who's so involved in day-to-day, -day, the 45th yeah. president of the United States. This has been a trip through American history for me, culminating in being here at the White House. What a great time to be with you, Dan Kaplis. It's just, uh, how do you feel being here today? Oh, lucky. Very lucky, because, I mean, think of the moment in history we're living through. So this administration you know, has the, the good fortune and the challenge, you know, to be in power at a time that's going to shape America for better or worse for probably the rest of its history. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs, and so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs, and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you, and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book and appointment link on, this, on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. This is Chris. Hey, Chris Tomlinson. Thank you. Hey. For, thank you for doing my podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. I mean, it's not every day I get to talk to somebody who's written one of my top 10 favorite books. <laughs> well, uh, I am honored. I am honored. Uh, 
you know, top 10 favorite this year or? Uh... I'd say ever because forget the Alamo, the rise and fall of an American myth just gave me a new perspective on this part of the world, which we occupy. You're down in Texas, but as you well know, and you write about it, there was part of Colorado that was in the nation or the Republic of Texas, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, Texas was, you know, the beginning of the, of Manifest Destiny. So, yeah. Right. So no, your history is my history, our history, American history. And that's why I wanted you on. And I know you've done probably countless podcasts and whatnot, but how many since Donald Trump came down to Texas Saturday night and gave that speech? Uh, no, you're, you're the first one. You are absolutely the first one. Everybody focused on his dangled pardons and uh, his call for the biggest protests ever against the three African-American prosecutors in Atlanta and Washington, New York. It was shameful, but I think people missed what he said about Texas at the end. And I'm playing that for my podcast audience. Did you focus on that? Did you subject yourself to listening to that stuff last Saturday night? I did not. Um, you know, I'm a, as a columnist, I wrote a lot about Trump while he was president. And I try to give him uh, as little publicity as I can now that he's out of office. And I write about business, economics, energy. Um, I, I leave the politics to uh, to other people. So Now, was, so, that, no, was that because you're a successful, super smart columnist or because your bosses said, hey, let's move on to other things now? Uh, no, that was me. Uh, my bosses... Um, my bosses really don't give me <laughs> guidance whatsoever, which is uh, which is both uh, you know liberating and a little terrifying. Uh, you know, because sometimes constraints can be helpful. But no, it's it, it was just me sick and tired of of uh, writing about him. You work for the Houston Chronicle, right? Right. My column appears in all of the Hearst newspapers nice. in Texas. That's amazing. But I don't want to bury the lead. And the reason I wanted to tell you, and you're smart not to subject yourself to this, and I did it to write a column that really was, you know, I have some new things, but what else can you say about Trump? But I will say that I thought about your book right when he said it. He said... Uh, from Dallas to El Paso, from Houston to I forget where else he said, but he said how great Texas was, the Lone Star State. And then he started to talk about his love of the Alamo. I love, And William Travis and James Bowie and Davy Crockett. But then he said something that Texas, ever since it was formed and fought a foreign army, is the way he put it, foreign army. And he said, and they formed the greatest nation there ever has been, which I'm thinking, is he talking about America or <laughs> the, the Republic of Texas, which was, you know, in part dedicated to slavery. And yeah. uh, that included part of Colorado, by the way. So 
I, I'm thinking this just went by, and he talked, even if you uh, give Texas, forget about when it was its own nation, it said Texas has distinguished itself from its first moments in this country, and I, I thought about the Civil War and the decisive, terrible event for America that Texas was a part of the South because they were good fighters. And I went to the Texas Capitol, summoned by Beto O'Rourke. I saw all those monuments to Jefferson Davis and uh, these yeah. guys. And it stunned me as a Colorado boy who really didn't start thinking hard about Texas until I read your book. So I'll shut up and and let you... Uh, tell everybody about your reaction to what I told you Trump said. Okay. Well, you know, I admit I saw um, I saw on Twitter uh, some of his comments quoted, and you know, I with Donald Trump, most of what comes out of his mouth is word salad uh, based on vague impressions of what he thinks people are proud of. Um, his, his, his comments clearly indicated zero knowledge about the history of Texas. Um, the fact that it was part of Mexico, that a group of white people basically stole the state, stole the land from a sovereign nation, the Republic of Mexico, so that they could establish one of the most militant slave nations in world history after uh, the Mexican Congress tried to ban slavery. Uh, so, you know, I can't make any sense of, of what Trump said, except that, you know, he was repeating comments that he heard other people make an hour earlier. Or he's reading something off a teleprompter, but somebody who I think does understand Texas history wrote that, and they're proud of that affiliation with the Confederacy. And you wouldn't have those big monuments still up on your capital unless a sizable part of your population liked them there. Am I right? Well, no, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, this is the reason we wrote the book is, forget the Alamo, is that, you know, most Texans... Um, over the age of 30, grew up with a version of Texas history that ignored slavery, ignored the horrors of um, the mass murder of Mexicans and Tejanos and Tejanas and people of color, Native Americans. Uh, you know, so much of what Texans think they know about their history is based on these fairy tales about the lost cause, um, you know, of the Civil War, that it was really about states' rights and liberty and not about enslaving people and keeping people in chains. Um, these, you know, the story of the Alamo under what we call the heroic Anglo narrative is about white people fighting for liberty against uh, an oppressive dictator when it was really about uh, maintaining um, slavery. 
A darker-skinned oppressive dictator, according to the myth. Uh, Hispanic uh, oppressive. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, Texas has not gone through any sort of um, reconciliation with its racist past. Uh, You know, we've maintained the myths. We've just taken out the words that are no longer acceptable. you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, when these monuments were being put up and these textbooks were first drafted, there was no um, hesitation to say that, you know, that the white people in Texas could not allow themselves to be ruled by a dark-skinned person. Um, that, you know, African Americans were inferior and therefore had to be kept either enslaved or under oppressive Jim Crow laws. Um, You know, the people who advocated for that remain heroes in Texas history books. We've just deleted the bits about them being racist oppressors. And, and And that's, I think, what you saw in Trump's speech, and it's what you see in Texas public schools still. Right. And there are laws that are passed. And the most disgusting thing about that Texas rally was Governor Abbott being there when he issued those mobster threats. And there was your uh, criminal AG, in my opinion. Isn't he charged? Why can't you convict him? Ken Paxton and a host of other Texas public officials. You can never tell how big the crowd is when Trump talks about it. But just having those dignitaries there... It makes me worried in him selling that false neg- uh, narrative. And Greg Abbott's right there with him. And, uh, and it's been political for a long time in Texas, whether you can teach the truth about the Alamo, they forbid it. And to me, that's the essence of this whole debate about critical race theory. I'm not that smart, even though I'm a lawyer and I went to law school and I hear it's a law school principle. But it comes down to just teach my kids the truth. And I want them to read Forget the Alamo by Chris Tomlinson because that's the truth. You guys back it up and you put it out there in such an enjoyable way. Don't you think your book is really relevant to this CRT debate? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, critical race theory, which is something I think I learned about in the early 1990s when I was at university, um, and completely forgot about until my book came out and people accused me of spreading uh, CRT. Um, it's this idea, and, and it's, it's a perfectly valid one, that our racist past, that, that our systematic oppression of people of color 50 years ago still resonates in society today, and that our work towards having true equality and equity in the United States is not over, that we still have some things to fix, that we still have racism in this world and we still have institutions that are that, that conduct business in a way that has racist outcomes. You know, that is only a radical thought if you're a white supremacist who's worried about losing your privilege in today's society. And that is who shows up at Donald Trump rallies. It is this older white person who is really 
uncomfortable with the fact that Texas is no longer 60% white. It is now only 41% white. And by 2025, this state will be majority Hispanic. And so these are people who are afraid of losing their power and privilege. And so they grasp onto these old myths and legends, not fully understanding how racist they really are. They show up not just at Trump rallies, but at the voting booths in Texas. And damn your laws. It's horrible. Uh, My God, you have one Dropbox in Houston. We have about a gazillion in Colorado. I understand why a lot of you guys come to Colorado now. It's to get away (laughs) from the forced education and just, I mean, for a lot of reasons. But it's just, it's not isolated. This is, this myth of the Alamo goes way beyond Texas. And I can only imagine the grip it has on Texans. It, it, It goes to the ballot box. Your story is about George P. Bush trying to embrace the legend. It, it, if you're a Texas politician, you, you've got to deal with the Alamo, and you've got to deal with Chris Tomlinson's book. You know, the politician's way of dealing with me was when my, me and my co-authors were scheduled to speak at the State History Museum, they canceled our event. They issued press releases condemning us. Um, they uh, went on television talking about how uh, we were trying to undermine the truth about Texas. Um, you know, this Texas is a conservative state, um, and the people who vote in Texas um, are keep elect- re-electing uh, these people who uh, advance a white supremacist agenda um, and who want to limit voting, who want to make it more difficult for people of color to vote. Basically, they want to make it more difficult for anyone who doesn't vote for them to have a vote. Um, It's really about power. Uh, And when you look at Trump's speech and you look at Greg Abbott's speech uh, or Ken Paxton, our uh, attorney general who's under indictment, and is now under an FBI investigation for bribery. Um, you know, this is a man who is still leading in the Republican primary for uh, re-election. Mm. His party is still backing him. And, you know, in his case, and I think this is somewhat instructional, you know, he was a huge uh, anti-abortion advocate when he was a lawmaker. Mm-hmm. And he made himself uh, one of the leading voices against abortion in Texas. Um, and that is a powerful wing of the Republican Party. You and don't have to one, tell me. Right. And it's, and it's, it, and it's, a, uh, it's a wing that's going to guarantee that even if he gets convicted of the felony uh, charges against him, um, he'll probably get reelected because he is popular uh, on that single issue. Um, so Texas politics are complicated. Our biggest problem, of course, is that uh, most Texans don't vote. Um, and there is a sense after 25 years of Democrats losing every statewide election that um, that, that they have no hope. 
And until uh, something changes to make people believe in the Democratic Party in Texas, I suspect Republicans will keep winning elections. Doggone it. Doesn't it seem like the Almighty keeps sending you guys a message in the form of cold weather? Hey, wake up. (laughs) Anyway, it's, it's so ingrained again. How did the Alamo get in our head in such a wrong way? And you guys document it beautifully. The false history, the fake news, and a guy named John Wayne. Tell everybody his role in making this myth. Well, you know, the only reason, there there are only two people responsible for people outside of Texas learning the story of the Alamo. The first one was Walt Disney who makes uh, a, a mini-series about Davy Crockett uh, showing Davy dying in a uh, final battle of the Alamo against uh, the Mexican president, Santa Ana. Uh, but then you have John Wayne, and John Wayne makes uh, his movie uh, six years later called The Alamo, where he also plays Davy Crockett. And... You know, he was an extremely uh, conservative individual politically. He was a John Wayne was. Uh, He was also uh, very publicly racist against uh, African Americans and believed in that white people were superior, uh, and said this on many occasions publicly. I'm surprised Um, he didn't own an NFL franchise. But keep going. And um, and he made he turned the story of the Alamo into a parable about uh, good conservative American values versus uh, socialism and communism and those darned Russian Soviet types. Um, and you know he made a movie for adolescents, a, a parable. Uh, that your average 12-year-old boy could get excited about. And unfortunately, a lot of those 12-year-old boys um, are now uh, are now leaders exactly in the Republican Exactly my Party. age. They're my age. Because this was aimed at me when I was a little boy. I remember the coonskin caps and all of that. And even as I read your book, and even a little while you're talking now, Gosh, you're talking bad about Davy Crockett? Well, John Wayne played Davy Crockett? I guess after reading your book, at least we can say Davy wasn't as bad as the others. No, no. And, you know, in many ways, you know, uh, David Crockett, as he preferred to be known, uh, was, you know, he was a footnote in American history before Walt Disney dug him up. He was a joke. He was a buffoon uh, that really never accomplished anything in Congress. And, well, tell uh, everybody was, about his uh, foray into well, politics. Well, he was best known for being a braggart. Uh, and he got elected uh, from Tennessee to Congress, where he proved himself uh, a bit of, a, of an intellectual midget. And You mean a Marjorie Taylor Greene of his time? Uh, yes, he was the Marjorie Taylor Greene of his time. And when he fell out with Andrew Jackson, uh, he did not get reelected. And he famously said, you can all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Um, and he shows up in Texas uh, two weeks um, before uh, Santa Ana, uh, you know, crossed into uh, 
brought his army across the Rio Grande River and and went to Santa Ana, went to San Antonio to put down uh, a rebellion by a bunch of uh, Americans who snuck across the border. Um, David Crockett was the original illegal alien uh, coming into a foreign nation and uh, causing trouble. Um, he did not fight to the death. Um, he surrendered. He begged for his life and uh, and tried to convince Santa Ana that he he really wasn't there to fight. He was just a naturalist who had happened to stumble into the Alamo at the wrong moment. And uh, Santa Ana wasn't buying it and ordered his men to uh, summarily execute Crockett in front of the Alamo. Um, and we know this because uh, the Mexican army being uh, trained in the fashion of Napoleon kept uh, very detailed records and reports. And uh, several officers described this as the fate of Davy Crockett. But that doesn't make good TV. So Walt Disney has him swinging old Betsy, his rifle over his head, uh, which is a complete fabrication. Oh, my God. What a sacrilege. Is that kind of discussion criminal in Texas? <laughs> if you said that to an eighth grade class, would you leave in handcuffs? Uh, you know, I don't believe so, but you know, there was a lawmaker who tried to pass a law that would have made it illegal to criticize anyone who criticized, uh, make it illegal to criticize anyone who died at the Alamo um, on the Alamo grounds. So if I were to, under this proposed law, which did not go into effect, if I said those things on the Alamo grounds, I could be arrested. Um, you know, and that's just the beginning. Uh, you know, we now have this law here where we're not allowed to teach anything to uh, white students that may make them feel uncomfortable about being white. So I guess we can't say anything bad about white people ever again in Texas schools. Oh, my gosh. Now, let's make Davey look a little better. See, I still can't help it. I was raised on Walt Disney, John Wayne movies, but... I started thinking about Jim Bowie because simultaneous with uh, reading your great book, I had a case where the biggest knife of my long career was involved. And I'm thinking, whoa, and that's a Bowie knife. And I didn't know. I thought Jim Bowie was okay. He used a knife to beat people in a gun battle. That doesn't happen all the time. But then I learned the rest of the story about Jim Bowie, who only looks good compared to William Travis, but tell people the truth about Jim Bowie. So Jim Bowie's a criminal. He's a criminal. He's a career criminal. He, uh, you know, he's, he's from Louisiana, uh, lives in Arkansas as well, uh, and spends most of his life uh, perpetrating um, land fraud, uh, where he would invent deeds uh, or forge deeds to land um, from the previous Spanish or French uh, governments that, that oversaw Texas and Louisiana and uh, would sell them or trade them in a way that made him rich. Um, federal prosecutors were, at, you know, were after him, um, and so he had to stay on the move. Uh, when he couldn't find enough fake deeds to, to trade uh, for cash, 
he would go uh, buy slaves from pirates in Galveston, smuggle them into Louisiana, where he would then pose as a bounty hunter capturing uh, slaves being smuggled into Louisiana, which was a crime. And uh, those uh, slaves would then be sold at auction. And as the bounty hunter who recovered the slaves, he would get a portion of the money. Uh, so he's a fraud. Uh, he is a slave smuggler. And when he's down and out and can't, you know, is he's in, he's in danger of imminent arrest in uh, Louisiana and Arkansas, he flees to Texas where he goes to San Antonio and charms the daughter of one of the most powerful men in the city, and a Tejano, and uh, marries into the family and starts living off in a, a, an allowance from his father-in-law. Um, and that's what he's doing when he decides to join with a bunch of other white people to steal Texas from Mexico. Wow. And Donald Trump praised him to the hilt and he did it along with William Travis. Most people know a little less about that guy. We've heard of Travis County. But William Travis, he was a doozy too. Tell everybody about him because Donald Trump loves him some William Travis. <laughs> well, you know, William Travis was my great-great-grandmother's cousin from Conica County, Alabama. Um, so, you know, we, we, have that, we have that relationship. Um, and he was, uh, a bit of an obnoxious kind of punk kid. Uh, he read the law, um, with a, with a, with an older lawyer in Alabama, uh, tried to practice law, uh, screwed it up so badly that the, his mentor ends up prosecuting him in a case, uh, for malpractice. And in the process, Travis, Travis argues that there's no way he can be guilty of malpractice because he's too young to know any better. I think he was 19 at the time. Uh, he does uh, do a, a little bit of wills, does, does, does some probate law where he manages to uh, basically swindle uh, slaves from uh, his clients, uh, take them for his own, and then sells them. And that's how he makes some money. But, you know, when he kills a man, he abandons his wife and uh, child. And guess what? He goes to Texas, where he instantly decides that um, Texas needs to be independent, to be independent and starts causing troubles in um, in what in what is now the Houston area. Back then it was called Harrisburg. Uh, he leads a small group of men to attack a Mexican army post, hoping to spur a revolution against the Mexican authorities. Uh, instead, his fellow Texans are, are horrified and uh, make him uh, turn over his prisoners. You know, but that doesn't stop Travis. He's still rabble-rousing, and eventually, um, you know, he helps trigger what would eventually be the Texas Revolt. Um, he goes to uh, San Antonio at the ripe old age of 26 and uh, takes command of the Alamo, where Jim Bowie uh, tells him 
you know, you can think you're in command, but I'm not following any of your orders. Um, it was only after Bowie came down with yellow fever and literally could not move from his bed that Travis takes command um, and ultimately Santa Ana uh, attacks. Um, in the very first volley of bullets, um, William Travis is shot in between the eyes and falls dead. Uh, Jim Bowie is killed in his in his uh, in his sick bed, uh, unable to defend himself. Uh, the whole battle of the Alamo, by the way, only took 45 minutes, and at least half of the casualties suffered on the Mexican side were from friendly fire, because they attacked in the dark and the troops were poorly maneuvered. Um, so this idea that somehow the battle of the Alamo was some lengthy, courageous um battle was just it's just plain wrong it's also untrue that um travis pledged to fight to the death uh, he actually tried to surrender twice uh including the night before santa Ana attacked and uh, santa Ana would not accept his conditions for surrender so yes travis is you know of, of the three he's probably the biggest scoundrel and uh, the one whose tales of heroism are most exaggerated. Now, these fellas, when they all got together, was there any drinking or wildness involved? Well, uh, you know, most most people agree that Bowie was, was an alcoholic and was drunk much of the time. Uh, his nickname... Um, let among, me guess. Uh, let me guess. Rudy Giuliani. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bowie's uh, 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 nickname among uh, the people of San Antonio was was the drunken drunken braggart. Um, you know, Travis kept a uh, kept a, a log of all the the prostitutes that he slept with, and so we know he he slept with about 50 women and he was taking blue mercury pills for um which was the classic uh treatment for syphilis uh in the 19th in, in 1836 so we feel pretty confident that he he had syphilis and whether or not that um contributed to the fact that he had a um a a very volatile personality of course we will never know um I mean, it was a, it was a rogues gathering. No wonder Davy looked good by comparison. I guess that's why Walt picked him out. What, what was up with Walt Disney? Did he know the truth? Was he a bad guy? Uh, you know, Walt Disney uh, was also uh, a, a staunch conservative. Uh, he hated uh, unions. Uh, he'd he'd gone through a really bad unionization of his animators at Disney Studios. Um, and he wanted to uh, develop a series of TV shows to that had these self-reliant American heroes uh, as examples of American stoicism uh, as an anecdote to this idea of, of organizing, uh, of... of where the Democratic Party and wrote, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, uh, he was opposed to all that, and he wanted to make it look bad. Um, I think he knew the truth about Crockett. 
but that didn't keep him from completely reinventing Crockett's personality. He was also a drinker. Uh, he was a jokester. He was he um, he liked to tell tall tales. Davy, um, Davy, or Walt, or both. Davy, Davy. Okay. But you know, if you watch the Walt Disney series, Disney turns uh, Crockett into this, you know, dour, quiet, uh, you know, very taciturn character. Which is just not is historically inaccurate. It's just that's not the Davy Crockett of history. He was more uh, like Matt Gates than Gary Cooper. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Who knew? I didn't know before I read your book, and I never really thought hard about Texas and how it got settled. But in a nutshell, it was a pretty wild place. The Comanches ruled the roost, and. Mexico owned the property, at least on paper, once they had their revolt against Spain, the, the prior owner. And yeah. then the, Mexico said, yeah, we'd like uh, people from America to come in, work the land, settle it, civilize it. And they said, we just have one condition. Uh, you got to work the land yourself. We don't like slavery. We cast that aside when we got rid of those Spaniards. They discriminated on the basis of race. We don't like that. So the southern country of Mexico said its most northern part is supposed to be slave-free, but these guys just wouldn't respect it. Am I right? That's right. That's right. I mean, the you know, it, it was it, it was a tough spot, right? And and the and the laws changed uh, frequently um, as the debates over federalism. And, and this is the thing: is you often hear. Uh, traditionalists talk about how the, the the Texas revolt against Mexico was about federalism. Well, the only part of federalism that was important uh, to the white people in Texas was slavery, because fe- the federal system left some wiggle room for slaves or for indentured servitude or for some form of peonage. Um, and that was why uh, the whites, the Anglos in Texas, were holding so desperately to this idea of federalism. And so when Santa Ana established a central governmental system uh, that would lead to the abolishment of slavery, that's, that's really when the rebellion took off. Um, and honestly, you know, Texas really is the story of America. It's the story of, you know, Europeans, mostly Anglos, coming to the New World um, and, you know, attacking and forcing out the people who were already here. Um, Texas was the start of Manifest Destiny. Uh, the uh, Taking Texas into the Union in 1845 led to the Mexican-American War which, of course, ended with Texas, with the United States taking over New Mexico, Arizona, um, California, uh, Utah, Colorado, right? That was all acquired as a result of the Texas Revolution. So, you know, the idea that it was just the Texans who were uh, racist, uh, you know, maniacs ethnically cleansing the Southwest uh, no, it, it, we were just the first ones to do it. Um, and the entire history of the Western United States is the story of Texas and the story of 
white supremacy and ethnic cleansing. And it's had repercussions that are profound, including a tradition in Texas. We don't really do it in Colorado. Fortunately, we don't do a lot of things you do in Texas, but do Hispanic kids get punched in the arm and white kids say, hey, this is for the Alamo? Well, no, when I, I, not so much anymore. Uh, I mean, that was definitely happening when I was a kid. Um, and I've seen it happen on you know, military bases in a lot of different parts of the world, U.S. military bases. You know, anytime there's a Texan, as I remember it when I was young, you know, 30 years ago, um, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, if you were a Texan and you came across a Mexican, you would pop him in your arm and say, remember the Alamo. And you were allowed to do that because you were white and they were not. Um, and, you know, when you interview Tejanos and Mexican and Chicanos of a certain age, uh, they all have stories like this and they remember it distinctly. Uh, we talked to so many people who said that they thought they, you know, they were all Mexican-American. And they said, I thought I was an American until I learned about the Alamo. And then all the white kids in my class turned against me and I realized I was actually Mexican. Uh, these myths are not harmless. Uh, they reinforce racist stereotypes. They reinforce a sense of who should have power and who should not. Uh, who should be master and who should be servant. And, um, and and it's high time that we we correct the record. And you do it so beautifully. I hope you've made a fortune out of it. Has it been lucrative to write a book like this? It is not lucrative to write books uh, ever. Uh, this is my second book. And, um, and while I love doing it, um, you know, it, you, you, you know, you don't get rich writing nonfiction books. Um, at least, uh, at least I don't. So, um, no, it's, it's, um, you know, it, I got paid enough for it to be worth my while, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, not gonna be buying any, uh, any vacation homes with uh, my royalties. That's in Colorado. I bet you already in have Colorado. one in Colorado. Um, I do not have one in Colorado. I, I bet you know, a hundred people in Texas who do. Anyway. I do. That's true. Uh, but what about the personal consequences? Some people get so wrapped up in it. I bet you've experienced threats, some danger. Has that been worth it? Uh, oh, well, it's definitely worth it. Uh, you know, I was a foreign correspondent uh, for the AP for 15 years and reported from nine war zones. So, you know, I, I, I tell people I've been threatened before by more dangerous people than what we have here in Texas. Um, but, you know, we, 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 have, we have experienced threats. Um, no, nothing, really, uh, nothing really too concerning. Um, but, no, we've, we've made a lot of people angry. And, um, you know, and we have people who, who kind of, you kind of uh, troll us and stalk us and, um, you know, but I, I think that's, that's calming down. Uh, the book is coming out in paperback in June, so I suspect we'll have another wave of trouble then. But, um, but no, it's definitely worth it. The number of people like yourself who've, who've enjoyed the book, who've gotten something out of it, 
who who want to know the truth and um, have never really don't have the time or inclination really to investigate these myths there on their own. Uh, we try to provide a service, make it as, as entertaining as possible. Oh my God, that, it was. Yeah. I listened to the Audible book, great narrator, but it's just your writing style. It was fun. And it doesn't just have John Wayne and Walt Disney in it, but give people a taste of Phil Collins. Because I like Phil Collins as a musician. He's had sort of a troubled life and physical problems, but what a what a run he had of success. And I just missed his involvement with the Alamo. Why did he get involved? How did he get involved? And was it a good experience for him? So, you know, Phil Collins was one of those kids who watched uh, the Disney Davy Crockett uh, TV show. And just, it captured his imagination. Uh, you know, and think about it. You know, the Battle of the Alamo is set up as a Bible story. Uh, you have, you know, the father, Davy Crockett. You have, uh, you know, the Holy Ghost, which is Jim Bowie. And you have the son, uh, William Barrett Travis, uh, the a Holy Trinity, fighting and, and dying so others may live and have their liberty. Uh, it's a compelling story when you tell it at a third grade level. And that's about how old Phil Collins was when he saw that. Walt Disney TV show. And so he became obsessed when he, uh, when he became wealthy, uh, his first wife bought him a piece of Alamo memorabilia and that set him off on a, uh, a lengthy and obsessive, uh, journey where he eventually bought land next to the Alamo where he could have his own excavation and, uh, pull up bits and bobs from the 19th century. Um, and he also met some people who had these access to these amazing artifacts, like, you know, William Travis's sword belt or, uh, or Davy Crockett's shot pouch or, um, you know, the knife that Jim Bowie was holding when the Mexican soldiers came bursting through the door of the Alamo. And if all of that sounds a little extraordinary and almost impossible, well, it's because it probably is. As, as we investigated, you know, so Phil collects all this stuff and then he donates it to the state of Texas. And the state of Texas says, oh my goodness, this is so wonderful. We're going to spend $400 million renovating the Alamo and building a new museum and uh, to house the Phil Collins collection. So we investigated. Uh, I've actually tracked down the guys who sold some of the most miraculous items to Phil. Uh, I interviewed them. Uh, I went through all their documentation, and then I took it to experts. And the experts that I spoke with um, feel fairly certain that um, these objects are not uh, authentic. Um, and so that was our scoop. That was what we ended the book with was the scoop that um, that the this this huge collection of artifacts that Phil Collins gave the state of Texas that inspired this four hundred million dollar project uh, are not what Phil Collins claims them to be. Um, and it's in in some ways it's it's a sad story. Um, most of these items were 
uh, Phil acquired after he had retired the first time, when his health was poor, when he was looking for new meaning in life. Um, and it seems that some people have taken advantage of him. Um, you know, a fool Phil, and his money. What happened to the four hundred million dollar grand structure? Uh, they're still they're going to move forward with it, and they're still going to try to build it. But they are finding it more difficult to raise the money now. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. There's a, uh, you know, the 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 Alamo is managed by something we call the General Land Office here in Texas. And the land commissioner who is in charge of the general, uh, who's in charge of the Alamo, it's an elected position. And right now, George P. Bush has held that position, but he's stepping down uh, and he's running for attorney general now. And so there'll be a new, uh, gen uh, there'll be a new land commissioner uh, next year. And so we're kind of waiting to see who wins that election and what they decide to do with the Alamo uh, now that we know that um, the Collins collection does not have uh, proper um, uh, authentication. Wow. You're in one of my top 10 books. I had the good fortune of having Colorado author Rick Riley on, his book, Commander in Cheat. And I'm a golfer, and if you are and you read that book, you just can't look at Donald Trump the same way again. If you really forget the Alamo, you just can't look at Davy Crockett and the myth of the Alamo the same way again. And I bet a lot of people just won't read your book because they don't want to have that feeling. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that young people are not surprised. You know, I think younger people who've grown up, you know, in the 1990s and in the 2000s who have learned about, um, you know, the civil rights movement and racism in our society, they're not really that surprised by, you know, and many of them have told me, oh, of course, you know, I knew there was something wrong with that story. Of course, it's all, it's all, you know, mm -hmm. uh, propaganda. It's the older people. It's those people who grew up with the racist textbooks who loved the Disney series, who loved John Wayne's The Alamo. Those are the people who are um, most upset by our book. Um, and they also tend to be the people who vote in the Republican primary um, and who want, uh, who, who, you know, I think much of Trump's appeal uh, to this demographic is that he's not he's he's reinforcing the old myths. He's making them feel good about their past and their ancestors, and he's absolving them of any uh, reason to confront truth and reality. And um, and he's he's shielding them. He's protecting them from the truth. And, and they reward him with their undying support. Uh, and to me, uh, as a journalist, to someone who's traveled the world trying to get at what is the truth behind conflict and why do people really fight and, and what's really at stake, um, it's just sad.
It's just sad. Right. And you use the powerful words, white supremacy is at the heart of it. And uh, the brave historian Kathleen Ballou at the University of Chicago, she says you can draw a line from the formation of Aryan nations, the order up in Northwest America in 1983, and then they came and killed a Jewish talk show host, Alan Berg, in Denver, and then uh, based on the Turner Diaries, a bigoted book about white supremacy, they turned on Bruce Pierce, who killed Berg, and then Tim McVeigh loved that book, and he carried out Oklahoma City, and then we saw them in Charlottesville, and those same people on January 6th, don't you see that straight line? Uh, you, you're a lot more well-traveled than me, but she, she drew that line, do you? I do. I do. I mean, it's, you know, the whole idea that North America should be a white nation is itself a, the result of colonial white supremacist philosophy. You can't, you can't deny that. Why else would it be okay for people from Europe to come here and commit mass murder um, to grab the land. You, that, that, that can only be justified if you believe that the people who came here are somehow superior, right? And this is the, the underlying um, premise that you know, so many people have a hard time accepting. And this is where critical race theory comes in, is that if you accept that, the, that this premise of, of, white, of a white nation or white nations in North America is, uh, is just, then you are buying into a racist uh, theory, into a racist uh, idea of what America should be. And, um, and that's what we have to, that's what we're challenging. So whenever I run into someone who, who gets really upset about my book or about the truths that we expose, you know, I just go back to this simple question. Why do you think, why do you think our white ancestors deserve this land? And I bet they attack the messenger, you and your fellow authors. Um, what do they accuse you of? I think uh, y you guys, you didn't have an agenda, or are you a, a commie, pinko, you know, hate America first guy? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a journalist, right? I mean, I, I, I tell people I'm not a historian, but I've got endnotes. I've got a thousand endnotes in that book. Uh, going to professional historians, backing up every single fact I put in that in, in my book. Um, you know, it's you know, America is changing. You know, Texas is no longer. I said Texas is only forty percent Anglo now. We are a majority minority state. Um, California is a majority minority state. The entire country will be majority minority by twenty forty. You know, we have to change the myths that we tell each other. You know, the, the white supremacy that has justified uh, the oppression of people of color for the last 400 years, um, it, it's, it's got to end. It's got to. 
Um, you know, we have a chance for the United States to live up to the promises that the founders have made that we have never fulfilled, which is this idea that we are not a country of, of blood and birthright and, and land. We are, a, we're, we're a nation of ideas and, um, and where you were born or the color of your skin does not matter. It's, it's the, it's the quality of your character. That's, that's the promise of America. And, and that's what we have to work toward. And it's not a zero-sum game. If other groups advance, great. It doesn't mean that we decline or anybody declines. I don't identify as white, and I'm glad about that. But I have identified a super guest in you, and I just need to ask about that experience with Associated Press. I know a lot of people with AP, including Dean Singleton, who ran it for a little while, uh, a media mogul Uh here in Colorado, and... Larry Rickman at the Colorado Sun worked forever at AP among, and then yeah. he, he's done other things. What was it like for you? Where did you, where were you a foreign correspondent? So, um, you know, I was a war correspondent. Uh, I joined the AP in Rwanda um, in 1995. Um, I had done some freelance photography for them in South Africa during the. Uh, end of apartheid in, in 1994. Um, I later became the East Africa bureau chief, uh, responsible for 14 countries in East Africa. Uh, I was the lead reporter at the, at the battle of Tora Bora. I was the only AP reporter at the battle of Tora Bora in oh Afghanistan. I was the lead embedded reporter during the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I reported from uh, Lebanon and Somalia and, uh, South Sudan and, and, you know, I said nine wars overall, um, uh, and of course, numerous, uh, natural disasters. Um, and so I've seen a lot of conflict. I've seen a lot of ethnic conflict. I've seen a lot of, of bigotry and violent ethnic cleansing. And, um, my first book, Tomlinson Hill was about my family slave owning history, uh, in Alabama and Texas where I kind of did my own reconciliation commission and tracked down the descendants of my family's uh, formerly in uh, the, the, the descendants of the, of the people my family enslaved um, and wrote a book about them and about, and about my family and about the story of America. Um, you know, I find that I am happier, prouder, and... Uh, and have a better understanding of, of America, my nation, my culture, and my history by knowing the truth rather than believing in fairy tales. I feel the same way after reading your book. You are so smart. Where are we headed in America? Have we gone over the edge? How do we back away from the precipice? You know, I think, um, you know, I'm I'm not as pessimistic as some about the future of our country. Um, You know, I think, you know, my family was involved in the Ku Klux Klan in the early uh, 20th century. Um, They were local leaders and, you know, some of my ancestors led lynchings. Um, And from studying that period, I know that these that America periodically goes through these bursts of, uh, of jingoism 
and um, and you know bigotry, and um, and I think we're going through something very similar to the rise of the Klan in the uh, in the 1920s. Uh, what I know from history, though, is that these things burn themselves out. Because um, they're the so more, stupid. I mean, that's part of bigotry. You got to be pretty stupid. Well, that and also you 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 age out, right? right? I mean, you you um, you know there. You know, I was talking to a group of uh, to clergy, a group of clergy, and and every one of them said, "Yeah, there's this period." in people's lives, like between 50 and 65, where people are just so angry and hateful and resentful, and they're looking for people to blame. And and then something happens around 70, when suddenly minds open and the anger recedes. And, you know, it's not you know, it's not as bad as it once was. Now, was this um, statement made before or after Fox News? Well, no, this was made like during a book talk, you know, about okay, recently. six months ago. Right. Six months ago, right? You mean at age uh, 70, they switch off Fox News and start watching sports or something better? Well, they start reading books like Forget the Alamo. There you and, go. And they're not as, they're not as vexed by it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so I think people age out. I also think these things burn themselves out, right? I mean, the um, the Klan uh, overextended itself. Its leadership became more and more crazy, frankly, and more extreme and more violent. And as that happened, uh, people began to turn their backs on it. And when uh, the criminality was exposed... Uh, support for the Klan really evaporated in three years from being a majority. You know, we went from having uh, state leadership in Texas being openly pro-Klan to um, to the Klan basically becoming part of the underworld in 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 the shortest five years. So I think I think we're seeing the apex of of Trumpism. Um, because of the midterm elections and because he's still popular. But I suspect that uh, the Trump's popularity will, will plummet after the midterms and his support within the Republican party will plummet as, as people realize that, um, that if he runs for reelection, it's uh, it, it would be a disaster because remember at the end of the day, uh, this is all about power and privilege more than anything else. Right, but I, I just worry that may be too late because if you have Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene ascendant in that caucus, they may appoint a Trump Speaker of the House. They're capable of wacky things. I don't know, but I learned a lot more about the Klan from your book, and I read the book about Grant, Grant who fought in the Mexican-American War and realized yeah. that it was wrong, and... Then after Lincoln's death and during Reconstruction, he had to put down the Klan. But never in American history have we had a guy as powerful, a former president of the United States, who's on the wrong side of this. And so to me, I'm, I'm a former Denver prosecutor 16 years, and I'd like to prosecute Donald Trump. And it seems to me the January 6th committee could do what you are talking about, maybe I'm issuing a prayer right now, that they 
pull down the pants of this emperor with no clothes. And it will be humiliating to back him once we realize what he did, whether he's put in jail or not. We just need most of America to say, you did what? Get out of here. Yeah, and I think I, I think there will always be, you know, a twenty-five to thirty percent hardcore that will never abandon Trump. But I think we can certainly shave off ten, twenty percent of his supporters. Uh, I mean, of the American people who support him now um, through exposing his his lies and his crimes. And I think that will happen. I think it will. I, I just hope think so. It will. Unless they, um, they they get short, they cut short. You're a business yeah, I, reporter. It's almost like you're analyzing it. Like you know, this stock won't sell anymore. Is it a market thing? And what I worry about is the mobsterism of Trump and the potential for violence uh, and fake events. And I even worry that Putin is working in conjunction with Trump and manipulating things over there. Because they're all mobsters together. Yeah, I mean, I I don't doubt uh, I don't doubt um, I don't doubt Trump's um, criminality, you know. I or or his his willingness, you know. One of the things that I sincerely believe is that if we reelect Donald Trump as president, he will never leaving, he will never willingly leave the white house. You know, we will have elected a dictator. Um, and I guess that that's a possibility, but I also know that there are a lot of Republicans. Um, there, there are more Republicans that want to see, uh, Trump go away than want to see him make a comeback. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, Greg Abbott, who was on stage with Trump, has desires to run for president. Um, he needs Trump to get reelected in November as governor. But as soon as he's got once he wins that race, though, you know, Trump becomes a, uh, a challenger, becomes an obstacle uh, to uh, to Abbott's desire to be president. Yeah, and but and, a, and Nikki Haley, Nikki yeah. Haley just endorsed Herschel Walker for U.S. Senate out of Georgia, and Herschel Walker will be a Trumpster if he gets elected for time immemorial. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I don't. Um, I like your optimism. How are you I, at I, stock I, picking? Your business reporter, give us a stock <laughs> tip. Uh, you know, I'm actually uh, forbidden. Uh, by my employer from uh, picking stocks. I, I I hate to break that to you, but no, uh, that's all right. I I my that's son a is that's a conflict of interest in my business. I, I I was just kidding, but my son's a business student, and after hours today, we're doing this on Thursday afternoon. We'll publish on Saturday morning. But Amazon reports t- bad news, and then the stock goes up. I never understood that. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> Mr. Smart Business Columnist? Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, stock prices are a reflection of the market's expectations for future earnings, not past earnings. So it's never what has happened. It's always what may happen in the future that determines the price of a stock. You are brilliant, Chris Tomlinson. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, your book 
rocked my world. And again, it's it's entertaining, every inch of it. I just congratulate you. I I wish you success on the paperback version. And uh, final thoughts from you. Uh, You know, I have uh, witnessed a lot of of, uh, of horrible things in my career, uh, covering nine wars from the front lines. And I know that we have this bias towards bad news and to the negatives. And my life lesson is that um, it's important to maintain optimism. It's important to not lose faith in humanity um, because for every bad actor you see out there, there's, uh, there's more than one good actor and, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out. It may take longer than we want, but we're going to figure this out. You are terrific, Chris Tomlinson. What's the best way for people to buy the book to put the most money into your pocket? Well, you know, you can buy it from, uh, your local independent bookstore of your choice. Uh, either online or in person or curbside, doesn't matter. Uh, I will get paid the same no matter what uh, bookstore you buy it from. And so go to uh, go to your independence and uh, keep a local business in business. Thank you, Chris. All right. Take care, Craig. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com LLC.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor. Or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, Troubadour, how's it going? Hi, Craig. It's going good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I have 
a fantastic interview with Chris Tomlinson about the Alamo, and I asked you for a good song, and boy, did you deliver again. So you liked uh, New Last Chance? I don't like it. I love it. Oh, that's great. It's got the Dave Gunders elements. You know what that begins with? Nature. And what's the biggest part of nature? The sun. You've got it in there a couple of times. And uh, just expand on that, because it's so cold. I like talking about the sun. What is it about the sun and you? The sun and all of us. The sun is, is is, is the source of life, right? And also, I think a lot of things rhyme with it. (laughs) You've got that and the double meaning of S-O-N, which is what you call Riley, your puppy. Yeah. Now, you grew up all over, me, a Denver boy, but didn't you spend some formative years in Texas? Yes, my my boyhood, and and I know you're going to be speaking about uh, the Alamo and the book, um, oh, I was I was so thrilled the the day my father told me he was going to take me to the Alamo to see it. So tell us about it. It was I mean I remember that my my biggest uh, impression uh, the most the most dramatic impression was was the fact that it was so small in my in my in my mind's eye as a boy I expected something huge you know this this great fortress and it's it's really a very small little fortress. Here's the cool thing about a podcast, and I listen to a bunch as well. We can't all read long books, but if you listen to this interview with Chris Tomlinson, you will absorb the message of forget the Alamo. But by reading the book, I realized, because I went to the Alamo, same impression, it's tiny, but there were barracks that aren't there anymore. And you know what's going to be there if certain Texas politicians have their way and the money's been appropriated? Um, I don't know. A big museum full of alleged Alamo artifacts donated by Phil Collins. Now, Phil Collins, the great singer, he had too much money. He's about our age, and uh, he had some injuries that prevented him from doing his music. I thought he was great. What do you think about oh, it? Oh, love, love Phil Collins. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not aware of his injuries. I didn't know what that something happened. Oh, he had happened. a neck injury oh. that prevented, prevented him from drumming and whatnot. But he grew up on the Disney uh, and John Wayne version of Davy Crockett. Didn't you think Davy Crockett was a great guy when you were growing up? Sure. Oh, Davy Crockett was a big-time hero of mine as a young boy in Texas. Gosh, was that a myth? And they do some myth-busting, and these guys, Chris Tomlinson, primary among them, they did the research to discover, really, that Phil Collins got swindled, and a bunch of people made money off the myth of the Alamo that wasn't true. But the worst part is, just the story isn't right. These guys, Davy Crockett, Bowie, Travis... All of them. Daniel Boone, right? No, not Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone wasn't That's there. That's a different Camp story. Sam Houston. No, Sam Houston survived. He was away, okay. as was Stephen Austin. They okay. were kind of the lawyer, politician types. But these guys, what a motley crew, but they died a real death. And you know what they died for? What were you taught? Well, I, I, I guess they died for, um, you know, the United States, America— uh, the you know f- defend defending our our territory from the Mexicans. Of course, we had stolen it from Mexico. <laughs> it was their land right at that moment. Yes, 
Yes. And what was the beef about? Well, that that I that I it was Santa Anna and his and his yes. and his troops that came. I mean, I thought it was as a boy. I think it was just kind of uh, uh, unknown to me, but but probably territorial in in its nature. Well, a lot of disputes have a territorial aspect, but just as we had a civil war over slavery, Mexico was more progressive because they'd gone through colonialism with Spain which were some racist sons of guns, and they would uh, divide the Mexicans based on skin color and Native American or Native Mexican heritage. And they said, you know what? As all enlightened people eventually do, they said, we're not going to have slavery. We don't believe in it. And you guys from the South in America, if you want to help settle Texas, it's wild. We got Comanches. We got this, that. If you'd like to grow an economy, please come and be part of our country. But we don't allow slaves. We just can't have them. We don't approve. But these Southerners, like Travis, Bowie, Davy Crockett, they believed in slavery. They came from the Old South, and they brought their slaves, and they fought over it. And that's what the Alamo was about, really. Yeah. They, they died. They fought for slavery, and in this case, it was the North fighting the righteous South as opposed to our Civil War. Right. And Texas in the middle of it. And Texas has some terrible history that they still have not reckoned with. No, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, that was new. When, you, when, when, when we talked about this uh, some time ago, I was, I was amazed to, to hear that it was about more about slavery um, than, you know, than a territorial dispute. But you know what? These guys died real deaths. And as they waited in the Alamo writing letters, which is part of your beautiful song we're about to play, they, you know, they weren't necessarily terrible people. I'm sure some of the soldiers had never even met a black person or owned a slave. But they were commanded by others who had this vision. And uh, it's sad. Your song's a little sad. But... It, it, it's like a plaintive wail. Give me one more chance. I, I, I'll do better, right? Right. I'll do better. Yeah. The music is fantastic. Simple lyrics, but I hear, is that a flute, a fife? What, what is that? I think, I think that was a recorder. I played that. And uh, so if it's a little out of pitch, you'll have to forgive me. No, it's good. And I like this stark ending. Mm-hmm. That's not usual for you. Why did you think this was a good song? About a soldier, some guy sitting there realizing Santa Ana is about to wipe us out? Well, it can be, it can be interpreted that way. I, think, I, I thought of it as, some, as a soldier um, you know, writing a letter to, his, to his, his lover, knowing that soon he would probably be killed. Right, The beautiful point Chris Tomlinson makes is we can't just say it's about Texas because Colorado was part of Texas. And as a result of the Spanish-American War, which quickly followed, uh, that's how Colorado became a state. And it's manifest destiny. And we have to kind of face up to the fact that, you know, we did some things as America. And to me, that's critical race theory. It's a law school concept, but you and I have kids, and we want them taught the truth, right? If the Alamo really happened that way, don't create a myth. Tell us what really happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, 
It's really interesting to look at it from a different perspective. And you're right. Everything I knew about the Alamo was kind of a Walt Disney creation. Right. It's a marketed thing, kind of like the NFL. I'm blown away by this Brian Flores lawsuit. NFL riding high. Have you ever seen better games than what we witnessed? And then this lawsuit drops, allegation against John Elway, and it was his sham interview. Um what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, that I just I've just heard about that. I listened to uh, an NPR interview, and uh, man, it's it's going to shake things up. I mean, I don't know what happened. I think uh, it's it's going to be uh, pretty significant though for the NFL. I love the way your song starts one by one. How many uh, black head coaches do you think there are in the NFL? Thirty two teams. You know, I don't know, Craig. You would one. know that. I gave yeah. you a clue. Yeah. One. Yeah. yeah. And so is that is that proof of discrimination? I remember as a boy just there being no black quarterbacks. Right. And you had Jimmy the Greek saying they don't have the necessaries. And Howard Cosell was a bit of a racist, this yeah, and that. Right. And he called the Alvin Garrett a monkey on Monday Night Football. Caught right. a lot of flack. But, you know, it we're we're beyond that now. We can see the black quarterbacks are great, and it came down to can they make the decisions? Are they smart enough? And they proved it. They proved it in the last election too. No, didn't they? Anyway, they they certainly have the capacities to be a great head coach or the president of the United States or a general manager. But it's kind of a good old boys club, especially among ownership. And I'm so disappointed that Robert F. Smith. A Denver East High guy who made a fortune, owns Vista Capital, has the money to buy the Broncos with chump change, African-American, Denver, and he said, "Eh, I'm not going to buy the Broncos. What a shame. I I wish he could be turned around on that because he's the kind of guy we need. And he said, I'm going to dedicate myself and my life to giving people the right to vote. And isn't that what it comes down to? When I was in Texas, I've got this mantra that civil rights are voter rights. If if you can't vote, then you don't have any civil rights. It's fundamental. It is for our democracy. It's fundamental to have, you know, ease of voting. And uh, I think it's a shame that this whole thing is coming up. That's that's uh, uh, limiting access to you know to voting. And it's and, and it's all based and it's all based on that on the lie that you've talked about so many times. And and nowhere is that more profound than Texas, which already has low voting turnout. If the people of Texas turned out, Chris tells me, and he lives in Houston, Texas would go a different way, and America would go a different way. And it's so crazy to me that Republicans are complaining about vote cheating when right in front of us we have fake elect. Electoral college certificates prepared by Trump and his team. They tried to steal and cheat the electoral college vote. And they're talking about the Democrats cheating. It's just, it's unbelievable. And it continues. It continues with the Republican Party saying that we don't want you, Cheney and Kinzinger. Get out. And they're giving money to their opponents. Kinzinger already isn't running, but... Cheney, it's time for Mitt Romney, who's tweeted against it. I tweeted back, nice tweet, now do something, Mitt. Say, I'm not going to be a Republican anymore. The Republican Party needs to go the way of the dodo bird and the way of William Travis and James Bowie and 
dare I say Davy Crockett, they're out of tune. And you can't keep people down that long. You can't keep people from voting that long, but you can if you keep myths going like the Alamo, which a lot of people still believe. And I don't, it still hurts me to say Davy Crockett was a bad guy because I'm almost as old as you. But again, let's get back to your music because I think somehow it just captures what we've been talking about. And, uh, and and you you tell us uh, what inspired you to write uh, you know that's, new last chance. I mean those three words together are so beautiful. New last chance, what a concept. Well, it's a it's an anomaly because a last chance is a last chance. The idea of a new one um, and someone hoping for that, I think, was kind of the the uh, inspiration for the song. And then I wanted it to be you know in terms of the instrumentation, I wanted it to be um, I wanted it to feel like Americana, something his. And so that's you know it's got the it's got the flute, it's got the uh, mandolin, and and it's it's a it's an acoustic oriented song that you know kind of brings up a different time for me. It is fantastic. Let's let everybody listen to New Last Chance by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thank you, troubadour. Thanks, Craig. Darken the sun River wide Great divide Me not listening to you at all You said goodbye Not thinking about what I could do Just what I can't Need a new life Feathered and tarred Branded and scarred Seeing you hundreds of miles away Here in our yard Losing ground Breaking down Even the sunrise don't stir me Survive 
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Hey, did I tell you we had a great show? Dave Gunders, what a song that is. New Last Chance, what a concept, too. Sometimes you do get a new last chance. It's a beautiful thing if it works out. I hope America has a lot of last chances. Maybe the dam has broken. We shall see. I wanted to give you a little taste of Mark Short. Our encounter with him, the full seven or eight minutes. Mark Short, critical witness against Donald J. Trump, if I read these tea leaves right. And you know what it takes to be a witness against Trump? You tell the truth. I'd like to tell you that I took my measure of the man in that brief encounter, and he seemed all right. I didn't know he was going to be a critical figure in American history. Mark Short, then working for Donald Trump. After that, he was chief of staff with Mike Pence, he was in the room where it happened, and now he told the January 6th committee, the Republicans are poisoning the well. Don't listen to the January 6th committee. Boy, am I listening. The American people need to listen, and I think it's going to be so overwhelming. I wish, I hope, I hope you have a great week. Here's Dan Kaplis and myself with Mark Short 
in Washington, D.C., on the grounds of a house at 1600 Pennsylvania. Have a great week. Now, Kaplis and Silverman, live from the White House. Dan and Craig, steps from the West Wing. Have the privilege of spending a few minutes now, seven exactly, we're told, with uh, Mark Short, Director of Legislative Affairs, really one of the very big brains and talents in the Trump administration, former president of Freedom Partners as well. Talk about a big job, Director of Legislative Affairs. You have health care, obviously, Mark, and then tax reform behind that. We'll talk to you about what's going to come after that. Will it be infrastructure? But health care in the news today, obviously, with this, this critical vote that's usually a no brainer but given the current circumstances a big win for you and the president to at least getting the vote from the senate to be able to proceed with a bill so give us your reaction to the vote today if you would well thanks to the question i think that uh, today was a big step forward in ending the obamacare nightmare uh, republicans have promised since 2010 that when given the opportunity they would repeal and replace obamacare americans are hurting americans are hurting under obamacare We've seen the premiums that were promised to go down by $2,500 on average have actually increased by over $3,000 per family plan. We've seen insurers in many cases in now 40 counties across America that don't have any insurers next year, zero insurers on the, open, on the free market exchange. You've got 1,300 counties that will have one insurer next year on the private exchanges. Uh, we have seen uh, promises that were broken about keeping your doctor, keeping your insurance mm-hmm. plan, and premiums going down. And so this is finally our opportunity to, to do something to fix it. And uh, we were anxious to get to this vote. The House has completed a bill. The Senate now is, is moving forward in, uh, in the process. It's the greatest deliberative body in the Western Hemisphere. There'll be an open amendment process. Republicans and Democrats alike can offer amendments to improve the bill. And uh, as the two bills emerge from each chamber, then there'll be a conference process and a final product that we hope will be in the president's desk, desk within the next few weeks. Mark, step forward, but you're a long way from the finish line. When do you have to get finished? Does it have to happen before the mid-August break? Uh, we've always asked that uh, Congress get a bill to the president's desk before the August recess, and that is that is the deadline that we have, and it's one that, uh, that we need to keep. Uh, this bill is being uh, driven under the 2017 Budget Reconciliation Act. That The 2017 budget year concludes September 30th. So there is, in fact, a real... Uh, definite deadline, but we uh, we believe that it's appropriate that we complete this before the August recess. But as you run toward that finish line, you've lost two Republicans. You have 50 plus the BP. You can't lose any more. Meanwhile, you have Democrats just blocking against you, trying to keep you from the finish line. How do you get around them? How, how do you hold all 50? What language will work to make that happen? Well, it, it you're right, Craig. It's a very narrow path that we have to walk, but at the same time, we believe the Republicans will do what they promised when they said that they would repeal and replace Obamacare. Susan Collins, in fact, had voted against repeal uh, last year. So uh, I think she's in a little bit different category where she apparently is comfortable with Obamacare. But the other members made that promise, and we look forward to them uh, upholding their promise to their voters and their constituents. Hmm. Mark Short, our special guest director of legislative affairs for the president. How, do, how does health care fit together with tax reform? How are they linked? Uh, great question. They're linked because actually getting rid of the mandates and the uh, taxes in Obamacare helps to reset the baseline for tax reform. And what my, I mean by that is there's roughly a trillion dollars that will be available to us in additional tax relief if we can complete the health care repeal first. Mm. 
Uh, additionally, I think it just shows that if the administration and Congress is able to work together to repeal as promised, then uh, then it's, it shows Congress that we can get things done. It sort of generates its own momentum as you head into the tax reform debate. Hmm. Is that why the president started with health care? It is. It's exactly why. It's because it does have a direct financial impact on tax reform. Uh, it, it helps to create additional space so that there could be additional tax relief for the American people in a budget uh, deficit neutral manner. Uh, additionally, we also felt like it was a promise that Republicans had made for many years. Mm -hmm. right. And so, uh, therefore, it was the right place to start because it united our party. President just took off from the White House to go to Ohio. Is that part of the plan to take the case to the American people, put pressure on the politicians? I think the president's uh, certainly in his element when he's able to travel and, and visit with the American people. I think that uh, there's a certain amount of coverage inside the Beltway here in Washington, D.C. that uh, I'm sure is depressing for most Americans. So when the president's able to get outside of D.C. and, and actually be face-to-face uh, -face with the American people, I think it's encouraging to him. He sees the support that's out there, and the Americans are anxious and, and excited to see him continuing to deliver on his results. In Colorado, we have a governor, John Hickenlooper, who paired up with John Kasich from Ohio, and they're saying... Why don't you guys listen to the governors? Are you listening, or do you not have a chance uh, because they, too, are obstructing? Well, I think, actually, there's been a lot of outreach to the governors. Uh, Seema Verma, who is head of uh, the, the Center for Medicaid Services, she's she uh, worked with Mike Pence, who's governor of Indiana, and actually helped to craft plans that have been used in Ohio for Governor Kasich as well as in Kentucky for Matt Bevin, as well as in Indiana. Uh, and I think she's had a lot of outreach to the governors about uh, about how we can work on a plan. I think in many cases, though, the governor's interest is a little bit different. I think in many cases, governors want additional federal dollars uh, so they can relieve some of the tax burden on the state. And so their, their priorities are how much more dollars can we get for our state. Hmm. But we have consulted the governors uh, extensively. The vice president's been speaking to Scott Walker as head of the RGA uh, multiple times today and through the weekend, as has the president. And, uh, Mark, sorry to interrupt. I know your staff needs you right now. One final question here. Uh, infrastructure, what's the timing on an infrastructure bill? I think uh, the infrastructure timing is, is a little bit less certain because uh, tax reform will probably take up a large part of the fall. After that, we need to make sure that we get to delivering the, pro the president's promise for border security. And the funding bill will likely be due by the end of this year, mm -hmm. which will help to continue to rebuild the military and to provide payments to beginning to build the wall. Infrastructure could be something that slides into 2018 unless it gets paired with one of the other options. What you've seen is when you go on a strictly narrow Republican-only legislation, that's a narrow path to walk. If you were to pair infrastructure with, say, something like tax reform, then perhaps you mm -hmm. could do it on a bipartisan basis. So right. that's the outlying question for us. Very grateful for your time today. Thank that was my you. honor. Thank you. It's it's a privilege to speak with you. Best of luck. One Thank you. Thanks for all you do. World. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. That, of course, Mark Short, Director of Legislative Affairs for President Donald Trump. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.